Tax reform. It's out. It's happening. Yeah. It's happening. It's happening. Welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. Joining me today, I have two guys named Dylan. Uh, we've got uh, Dylan Matthews, who is visiting us from uh, the New York office, and Dylan Scott. It's a lot of Dylans, um, you know, a little less less diversity. We're all wearing glasses. Uh, but it's a, it's a great crew to talk about the tax reform bill that was unveiled to uh, much fanfare uh, yesterday by by House Republicans after a, a lot of anticipation, and I have to say there was some there was a, a lot of leaks. I mean, there had been a lot of discussion about this. This was not exactly like the tightly held secret that the healthcare bill was. Um, but I was still kind of surprised with what came out. It wasn't it, it, it tracked the broad themes of the framework, but it, it was it was not exactly what what I had expected. And and Dylan uh, Matthews, you you have a good piece up today about it, it it's sort of surprisingly bad right so i should say up front like i'm not the target audience for a republican tax bill i don't think it's that important to cut marginal rates on rich people or, or give tax relief to corporations but there were a couple of things that i was still sort of excited about in the overall framework um i think the main thing was there was really a possibility of them not just expanding the child tax credit but making it more uh, accessible to poor families the way that, that the credit's set up now, there's sort of a, a sort of complicated formula to decide if you get some of it back if you don't have an income tax liability like most poor families don't. Uh, and Marco Rubio and Mike Lee and importantly, Ivanka Trump had been trying really hard to expand that and, and allow more poor families to claim more of the credit. That did not make it into the final bill. What did make it in is this provision requiring social security numbers for people to claim the child tax credit, which is a thing that sounds reasonable until you remember that there are undocumented immigrants who live here, who have kids who are U.S. citizens and want to claim this credit on behalf of their kids who are citizens and are entitled to this credit. And they can't do that because they don't have a social security number. So this is something that would kick about 3 million kids off of, off of the system, basically to stick it to immigrants. Uh, it doesn't raise a lot of money. And they're also not doing the thing to to help poor families. So that was just a huge whiff. It was a point of the bill that could have been a legitimate sort of bipartisan thing to cut child poverty, and they just like didn't bother to do it. But I mean, you know, you say it doesn't raise that much money to to narrow it down that way, but it does. They're operating at a, a margin, right? I mean, within the ten year scoring window, they have a budget resolution that calls for one point five trillion dollars in additional deficits over 10 years. And the bill hits that mark. Exactly. And, and only hits it. Yeah. They don't seem to have left themselves any room for error in terms of hitting that $1.5 trillion deficit increase number. Right. So and and that's that's important. That's not just like a like a theoretical goal, right? Like there's like an actual can, can you explain to people like like th- this this really matters. Like they can't just make Dylan happier <laughs> by uh making the child tax credit refundable. Right. So this is all back in the Senate. It's like it's healthcare all over again. The Senate Republicans are using what's called budget reconciliation um to pass the tax bill with only 51 votes instead of the usual 60 that it takes to move legislation. And so with that the special privilege of budget reconciliation 
question, um, there are certain conditions that uh, the bill will have to meet on the Senate side. And one of those is um, ha- all of those have been laid out in the budget resolution that Congress has already passed. And the, you know, it's kind of an arbitrary goal, but um, the Senate had to set some kind of deficit increase number that they would have to meet, and they picked the $1.5 trillion number. And so now that's going to frame uh, everything that in the tax bill from here on out, because otherwise you would ha- need 60 votes and therefore Democratic buy-in. Right, and, it. and it's important because there's, there's a lot of, this is a big bill, right? And it, it touches on a, on a lot of little things, right? And some of it sounds like, kind of crazy, right? So like one provision of the bill would take away a tax credit that currently goes to families who adopt children. So that's like, it raises like almost no money to do that. It's like a freebie for anybody to like throw in on their ad. Like so-and-so even voted to raise taxes on orphans. And like so-and-so, she really did. Like that is a real bona fide, legitimate provision of this legislation. And you can't just strike that out. Right. You can't just decide, okay, this or that random small thing has become like a democratic focal point. They're like operating with zero margin for error. But let's let's pull back. The, I, I think you can I, I like the committee in a responsible federal budget put out just like a table trying to summarize the bill, which I think was helpful to me to like break it out into a few different buckets. And so like one big bucket here is the estate tax, right? Which uh, you get a big cut right away, uh, growing to eventually a total elimination, and that costs about $170 billion, I think, in, in the 10 years. It's about 10% of the overall cut. Right, of the of the net cut. So that's just like a big thing that's in there. It's like an ideological fixed point. Um, then you have about a trillion dollars worth of corporate tax cuts on net, but the gross change on corporate is, is way bigger than that, right? It's like— right. It's like a $3 trillion corporate tax cut offset by $2 trillion, or I'm sorry, business. Bus- yes. So there's, you have to sort of differentiate. We have two systems for taxing corporations in, in the U.S. There's one where you pay the like actual corporate income tax, which is currently 35%, and they want to cut to 20%. And then there's another system for sort of smaller companies, organized as partnerships, LLCs, that kind of thing. And they pay sort of normal income tax rates after all the profits are distributed to owners. And so for both of these groups, the tax plan is cutting them, but it's cutting them in a lot of weird ways. And as you say, there's a huge gross tax cut, and then there's a sizable sort of revenue raisers trying to sort of expand the base for corporate taxes and and pull in uh, more revenue sources. And so the net effect of that is a tax cut, but there are companies that win really big and there are companies that lose significantly as a result of that. And like, I, I think it's important to understand this. Like, this is an interesting mashup of like two different legislative concepts, right? Like we have in the theory of Washington politics, like a, a notion of tax reform. And tax reform means you cut rates and you broaden the base. And it's, people will say things like a, like a, like a smart take column would be like, tax reform is really hard. Um, and tax reform is really hard because when you broaden the base by eliminating these breaks, you always have some industry who's like, no, but I like my tax break, right? And, and so they try to stop you. And because it's hard, the way you get it done is you make it bipartisan, right? So you have a lot of 
a lot of different senators might vote for your tax reform bill, right? And and you try to get like columnists to say, no, it's good, it's good, it's good that they're doing this hard thing. Um, and then the other idea is like tax cuts, right? And that is like you say, okay, you don't need to pay as much taxes anymore. And then Democrats get mad because it's regressive and they don't like budget deficits, whatever. But but tax cuts are easy. And on the business side, this is really like like it's both at once, right? It's it's hard like tax reform because people are losing certain tax breaks that they want to fight for, but no Democrats are going to vote for it because it's a giant business tax cut. Right. And and I think there are two sort of impulses behind this. One is just like business lobbyists want lower taxes on business. Yes. And they are not interested in any of the pay-fors and like no one is going to be pulling in that direction. And in fact, they're actively going to be fighting against some of the pay-fors. And then there's sort of like a principled and like, I think mistaken in certain respects, but like like a real argument that conservative economists make that the corporate income tax is structured badly and should sort of be structurally changed in some ways. So like now you can deduct interest on, on debt. A lot of economists don't think you should be able to do that. Getting rid of that raises a lot of money and they both want to raise money and also just like think that's a good idea. And so you have this sort of intellectual base of the Republican Party that's trying to craft a bill to solve these problems that they've identified in the tax code. And then sort of the muscle behind them are these corporations who have no interest in those technical changes. So wh- what it, what is the biggest like business side revenue raisers in here? So they get rid of a bunch of sort of specific credits. So there's a credit for domestic manufacturing that they get rid of um, that I think is going to be a big deal for, for sort of people in manufacturing heavy districts. They limit deductibility of interest, uh, which raises a lot of money. I think the most interesting one is it's it's almost an attempt to scramble at some of the revenue losers that they have in here that a major priority for Republicans for years has been to shift the, the U.S. corporate income tax from what's known as a worldwide tax, where income wherever it's earned is taxed, to being a territorial tax where only U.S.-based income is taxed. Um there are various arguments for why you should do this. The obvious problem with this is that it gives you a huge incentive to relocate income overseas. So if the U.S. has a higher corporate income tax rate than like Ireland, which it does and always will since Ireland's is, I think, like 8.5% or 10% or something like that. It's low. It's quite low. And so like if we're just not taxing income that comes there, like everyone has a reason to move their income to Ireland. And so they have to sort of come up with hacks to keep them from doing this. And so they just have a bunch of random taxes up at companies that are trying to move money overseas. So like they have a 10% like minimum tax on on foreign profits for companies if they're above a certain amount and they suspect you're hoarding profits overseas. There's this new 20% tax for all money you take from the US and put overseas. And Marty Sullivan, who's this this tax economist who who uh, runs this publication called tax notes that all tax sort of nerds should read he he was making the point that like for many multinationals this amounts to a tax increase right and i know i've seen some agitating here in the last couple days on the right from groups like freedom partners and this is the thing that they're upset about right because they've they successfully killed the border adjustment tax back when paul ryan was trying to make that happen six months ago but now i know i've seen some releases from those groups that they see they, they kind of see this as a backdoor bat basically and you know politically speaking the way this bill passes is if you only upset the moderates in the house and you keep the freedom caucus on board and so it seems like anything that risks upsetting that balance 
is potentially problematic, but I don't know if they're even right on the merits and how big right. of a problem it could like, be. I think there are significant differences between what specifically the bill is trying to do substantively now versus what it was trying to do when it would tax exports um, uh, back last year. and Tax and, imports. Or tax imports, excuse me, uh, back in the, the halcyon days of, of the destination-based cash flow tax. But yeah, I think there's a similar political dynamic where multinationals had thought they were coming in for a windfall and now are hearing that they might get screwed because they were so desperate to avoid this problem that their proposal inevitably causes, um, that they sort of backtracked a little too much for for multinationals' comfort. Um, and I think what the what the Freedom Caucus does with that is is an interesting question in that the sense I get from comments by people in that group is that they're less motivated by sort of the interests of the big multinationals and more about trying to get cuts for these pass-through entities mm. that that don't pay the corporate income tax. And so there's this this big provision in the bill that would cap pass-through uh, taxes at 25%. Currently, you pay up to the top rate. So if I'm like a millionaire and I have a pass-through company, let's say I am um, own a company, I don't want to say a real company, so let's call it the Trump Organization. <laughs> and so I, I get I get millions of dollars in income through my pass-through companies. I pay the top 39.6% rate, um, and, and that's that. This would like lower that to 25% while keeping the 39.6% top rate for everybody else. So this, this helps a lot of firms in that position who... Uh, I think are close to a lot of people in the Freedom Caucus, and so they're very interested in doing this. But it has a similar problem to the foreign taxation thing, where it creates an obvious loophole that they then have to scramble to close. And the way that they're scrambling to close it might sort of alienate those people. So, like, the obvious problem is I can start the Dylan Matthews Corporation, and instead of working for Vox Media for a wage, I can contract to, to get business income, and then count that uh, as as my earnings and pay this new lower rate. Um, so it's so a specific thing they're saying, right, is that under this new system, if your business is a professional services business, you don't get to take the special new low pass through rate. One thing to note is that there was initially the claim that you were going to be able to do your taxes on a postcard, <laughs> which if you start thinking about this is very clear. Right. If you've listened to, to this podcast so far, it is obvious you can't do this on a postcard. Right. right. <laughs> um, um, but yeah, so so one thing they've tried to do is to like explicitly say if you're a law firm or an accounting firm, you can't do this. The other thing they say is uh, if you work at your company and you're not just a passive investor, then they're going to assume that 70% of what you earn is wages and tax it normally. And then the other 30% will be sort of this business income taxed at a new low rate. And so you still get an advantage, but it's lowered. But there are tons of ways around this. Um, Dan Shaviro, who's a really smart tax lawyer at NYU Law School, I had this example today where you could just do do trades. So if I have a company and Matt has a company, um, I could just sell all my shares in my company to Matt and Matt could sell all the shares in his company to me. And so we're now both passive investors. And so we get the full benefit of, of this tax break. And um, even though the lawyers and accountants who would set this shell game up would not get the new tax break, they would at least get get new business. Exactly. Yeah, there's there's a lot of new exciting uh, tax evasion business for, right. for tax lawyers. Um, and so there's all these problems and then they're trying to scramble it with all these rules like no tax law firms can't do this. No, we're going to do this sort of 70-30 split. 
And that all winds up raising revenue in some weird and concentrated ways that winds up alienating the groups that you're trying to help in the first place. And so I, I imagine there are law firms and accounting firms that are calling Mark Meadows and being like, like what the hell, man? Um, and, and so there's going to be back pressure to try to do less to close those loopholes. It's a mess. So wait, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a break and, and return to just something uh, D- Dylan Scott said earlier. As savvy podcast listeners, uh, you guys probably know all about Lyft. But Lyft is a company that knows that their drivers are what keeps them moving. So they do everything they can to make sure their drivers are happy on every trip. It's a really simple formula. Happy drivers equals happy passengers. Uh, That's why 9 out of 10 Lyft rides get a perfect 5-star rating. And you can earn hundreds of dollars per week, plus tips as a Lyft driver. You want to earn more money? You drive more. It's never been easier to give yourself a raise. Uh, Lyft was the first rideshare platform with tipping built right into the app because they know getting tips shouldn't depend on your passenger having some crumpled up like weird pieces of money in their pocket. You keep 100% of the tips, and tips add up fast. Drivers have been paid over $200 million since the feature was first introduced. And with Express Pay, you get paid almost instantly instead of waiting for weeks. Lyft has even taken the guesswork out of pickups. With their new AMP device, they use color coding to help passengers find their drivers. Join the rideshare company that believes in treating its people better. You go to lyft.com slash weeds today, and you get a $500 new driver bonus. That's lyft.com slash weeds, L-Y-F-T dot com slash weeds. Limited time only. Terms do apply. I think one thing that we saw with the with the healthcare bill that, that went through the House was that it rolled out and there was strikingly little industry support for it. Um, and then that wound up making strikingly little difference, right? Yeah. And that was something that was fascinating to me. I mean, in, in the end, the bill didn't pass the Senate, but I would have said you can't pass a bill through any House of Congress with all of the trade groups in opposition to it. That, right. like, that's just like, that's not how America works. Um, so that's now giving me some questions about, you know, like how we should even think about about this tax bill. But I mean, what was your, I mean, you know, you know, lobbyists, you know, <laughs> you know, like, what was your experience of that? Like, how, how come that didn't matter in healthcare? Well, I think um, in healthcare, it didn't matter so much because there was just sort of a, I mean, it was really like an ideological crusade, right? Like we have promised for seven years to repeal the Affordable Care Act, and now we have to do it. And so I think there was just that kind of motivation to, that we have to get this done, and it doesn't matter what outside groups say. What I do think will be interesting this time around is so, to your point, it didn't matter, but, you know, Republicans were at odds with doctors and hospitals and, like, these very kind of sympathetic groups, the white coats who didn't like their health care bill. And I do think that probably provided more of a headwind than, you know, like, if the pharmaceutical companies had been opposed to the health care bill. And I think at this time it'll be interesting because, you know, the most— prominent interest group that I'm aware of that's really opposed to this right now is um, the basically the home builder businesses and like the real estate industry. And like that is just inherently a much less sympathetic group. It's easier to sort of characterize as a special interest. And there was a recent tweet from our president that I thought was really interesting about how, you know, we've released this great tax bill. The special interests are going to try to, you know, gum up Congress and get them to stop, um, get them to stop from passing this bill. But like Republicans are going to hold strong. And I feel like I never heard that from him during the healthcare debate. And maybe it's because doctors and hospitals are harder to demagogue than the real estate industry or lawyers. Um, but I feel, I wonder if that'll, that seems like a very different dynamic this time. And that like, you can almost 
a benefit of the plan is going to be who opposes it in a way that was not true in healthcare. On the other hand, I always felt like industry opposition to the healthcare bill was a little bit half-hearted. Yes, I think in a that way that true. may not be true here, and also on an ideological level. I mean, Republican—I don't want to caricature them too lightly, but Republicans don't like taxes. They're right. they're not here to raise taxes on people. And and one thing that came out with yesterday's bill was a heavy. Uh, heavy dose of spin from Paul Ryan and, and Kevin Brady. And they're like, a typical family's taxes are going to go down, whatever, $11,000. Um, and I think that Kevin Brady understands perfectly well the extent to which that is true and the extent to which that is not true. But I think some of the backbench members may like actually not know what is going on here. Um, but it's just, it is the case that with these many trillions of dollars worth of gross changes leading to a net cut of 1.5 trillion like lots of people and businesses will in fact be paying more taxes under this plan like yeah. there's, there's no way around that and when individual companies have their accounting departments look through this some of them are going to reach the conclusion that this is raising taxes on them they're going to phone up they're members of Congress. And I'm I'm just I'm genuinely not certain how many Republicans are gonna House Republicans are gonna be like, no, fuck you, you gotta go pay more tax. Like that just yeah. doesn't that doesn't sound like something Republicans the one want thing, to do. The one thing I learned from reading a book about the 1986 tax reform um initiative, you know, plan was that, you know, it, there seemed to be a very identifiable pattern of the bill comes out. People mostly say nice things about it, and then they understand what it actually does, and then the plan ends up sinking. And I wonder if we're going to go through a similar sort of iteration here. And we had sort of a number of cycles of that. Like, I think one thing that was surprising when this bill came out yesterday was was all the stuff that was rumored to be in there that wasn't. So, like, there was a big uh, floated idea to limit certain 401k contributions the week before, and everyone went back shit because everyone like in the press and sort of in upper middle class, upper class America in general loves their 401ks and doesn't want these limited at all. And so they sort of floated that trial balloon and it got shot down and there are no changes to retirement savings in this bill. And then uh, they they put up a, a balloon for limiting the state and local tax deduction. It's basically succeeded, but they had to pare it back a little bit. And then the literally the day before this bill came out, there were all these reports that the corporate tax cuts were going to be temporary. Right. That, that because of reasons. Well, let's put a, put a pin in the temporary corporate tax cuts because we, we, we got to talk about that later when we talk about the Senate. Sure. There was also the individual mandate. Right. <laughs> President Trump very much wants to now repeal the individual mandate as part of the tax bill, which leads to Matt's favorite dynamic of cutting taxes on the rich and wealthy by taking right. health care away from people. But so, well, let's talk about the state and local tax, right? Because this is like, well, this is an issue near and dear to my heart. <laughs> this is the main reason. Matt pays a lot of state and local taxes. Well, um, mostly just local taxes since he doesn't live in a state. Well, no, so this is an important change because this is, I think, an interesting moment for the Republican Party where they are attempting to make tax policy via culture war politics. And they have decided that what they would like to do is put a broad tax increase on affluent but not necessarily hyper-rich people on the theory that the people they are raising taxes on live in California, 
Right. And and so this is is it, right now you take your your state and local taxes, property taxes and income taxes primarily, um, and you deduct them from your income. Like all tax deductions, this is regressive, uh, primarily because the marginal rates go up the more your income is. So any kind of deduction is just worth more to a rich person than to a middle class person. Uh Blue states tend to also have progressive income taxes, and obviously rich people have more expensive houses. So this is definitely a, like, distributionally progressive change, um, although it's now being, you know, rolled into a plan with the state tax cuts and and whatever, whatever. But you could imagine a Democratic administration uh, trying to do this. What's weird is that, like, why does a Republican administration want to raise taxes on upper-middle-class people. And the reason is that they've decided that the people who pay this tax increase uh, basically, like, are liberals. Right. That Well, and to, 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 like, underline this point, uh, you technically can deduct either state income or sales taxes, but deducting sales taxes is pretty rare. And so this is mainly something that benefits people in states with really high income taxes, which is... Oregon, New York, California, New Jersey. And and so, yeah, there's a degree of sticking it to, to liberal state governments. But as you've written, Matt, like, if you look at who's vulnerable among House Republicans, they're all these sort of moderate-ish Republican members of Congress who represent wealthy suburbs in liberal states. So there are like four of these guys in, in New Jersey in various places uh, Tom MacArthur, who who has a sort of central Jersey district, has been a very vocal defender of this deduction. Um, there's a lot of people in like Westchester and, and other sort of suburban counties of, of New York. Um, and so in a sense, you're sticking it to the libs. In another deeper sense, you're sticking it to the most vulnerable members of your own party who you need if your majority is going to stick together. Yeah, and I think it's, but I do think it is the same calculation they made with the healthcare bill. The healthcare bill was in trouble when the Freedom Caucus and the moderates were opposed to it. That's when it died in March. And what they ended up doing was just moving the bill to the right, winning over the Freedom Caucus, and then they made the you know the bet or the calculation that enough moderates are squishes that they can find their 218 votes. And it seems like that's probably what they're going to do here again. Yeah, I mean, that is definitely the hope, right? I mean, the, the, their view is that institution—I mean, I've written about this. Their view is that institutionally moderate Republicans do not have the ability to, like, take a stand. Right. Right. That, like, that the thing about the Freedom Caucus is that it has, like, a donor base— and an organizational base that is different from party leadership's base. So they can get on the outs with Paul Ryan and, like, live to fight another day. Whereas, like, Mimi Rogers, these people, like, they they have donors and they have activists and they have support, but it's just the same people as the ones who back Paul Ryan and, and Kevin Brady and yeah. others. On the other hand, like, if you're looking at, you know, if you are um, representing Southern California district, uh, your whole state Republican Party has been, like, blown away in the post-Trump nuclear holocaust, uh, but you're still out there. If you can't tell your constituents that you're there to protect them from tax increases as a Republican, like, I just don't know, like, what do you say? Right. Like, what is Tom MacArthur doing in Congress if he's not going <laughs> to stop 
New Jersey taxpayers from paying higher taxes. Well, it's an interesting test because I, I think there are technically enough California, New Jersey, and New York Republicans that they could stop this bill if yeah. they wanted to. They theoretically have the leverage. MacArthur said he has sort of a caucus of 22 defenders of the state and local tax deduction who will who will stick together. And it's like guys from Long Island and, and, and Jersey mostly. Um, but yeah, like 22 people with the margins they have in the House, and especially given the Freedom Caucus's apprehensions, like, that's power. Yeah. And, but MacArthur is interesting, because I think I saw his sort of ask right now is, like, just increase the deductions for property taxes a little bit more, and then I'll be okay with it. And so, it's, again, all healthcare is inevitably going to frame how I view every kind of legislative fight going forward, but it ended up being only a relatively small and kind of just symbolic giveaway that got moderates on board last time. And I wonder if this is being set up again. It is interesting. So as the person in this room who lives in New Jersey, I had not (laughs) internalized how literally the only thing people in that state care about are how high their property taxes are. (laughs) It is the only thing they talk about. And it is like the defining issue in the gubernatorial race this year. And so like I I sort of understand where MacArthur is is coming from of like if you're in the state that has by far the highest property taxes of any state in the union, like this is a, a, a defining crusade for you. Um, but it does seem like they need to find money somewhere. The state and local tax deduction is a huge pot of money. They've rolled out most other pots of money. They're doing this sort of small thing with the mortgage interest deduction, but they're not touching charity. They're not touching capital gains. They're not touching like the places you go to make money. So they, they kind of need this. Yeah. The, the reason I think this SALT idea may not stick when the going gets tough is that I feel personally that like my tax situation, this is really bad for me. And I feel that my tax situation is really similar to the tax situations of like most of the senior staff on Capitol Hill. <laughs> right. And then when this hurly burly starts going, right. And Tom MacArthur's in a meeting and he's like, come on guys that like, just like literally the people who are doing this work are going to start to feel a little bit queasy about this. Uh, If you're living in D.C. or you're living in Virginia, you know, you're talking about an income tax state. You're talking about uh, uh, expensive property type state. They are already doing this mortgage deduction limitation that's like not great for people who own homes in expensive areas. I think a little bit of an overstated issue, but it's it's out there. Um, And then it's like, yeah, I don't know, like. Is this really what people are going to want to want to gut it out over? I'm a little skeptical. Um, but then I think we should take another break and we should talk about Senate rules because this is where, you know, the rubber really hits the road. Uh, look, it, it happens. It, it happens to all of us in life. You're at home and you wish somebody could just bring you some beer, some wine, some liquor delivered right to your house. And somebody has finally decided to do something about it. That's Saucy, the alcohol delivery app. Uh, They deliver your favorite wine, beer, liquor to your door on demand. It's Uber for alcohol. And if you're in Los Angeles, San Francisco, Chicago, San Diego, or Sacramento, your Saucy order will arrive at your door in 30 minutes or less ready to drink. Uh, For the rest of us, Saucy delivers beer, wine, and liquor to your door in two days or less nationwide. No order minimums, no delivery fees, no running to the store. If you've got the Saucy app, you've got a fully stocked bar on your phone. For a limited time, you can get $15 off when you download the Saucy app and enter promo code WEEDS. That's the Saucy app, spelled S-A-U-C-E-Y. Enter promo code WEEDS for $15 off. Get the Saucy app today. Use promo code WEEDS.
so we, we talked before about the $1.5 trillion target, but there's a there's like another deficit rule in the Senate that is very important here and that this House bill does not appear to comply with it in any way. Um, and can, can you ex- explain that for us? Yeah, so the $1.5 trillion deficit increase, that's for the first 10 years that the bill would be enacted. And then, but there's another, and that's a target that they'll have to meet under the Senate budget and reconciliation rules. But another piece of the budget reconciliation process, one of the conditions of using this these special privileges to pass a bill with only 50 votes, is that you can't increase the federal deficit outside of that 10-year uh, window. So 20, 30 years down the line, your plan cannot be continuing to increase the federal deficit. And I know, I think Dylan wrote about this yesterday, it would appear, you know, I'm not the CBO or the JCT, but it would appear that given the way that the this plan is increasing the deficit in year 10, it would certainly be continuing to increase the, the deficit in year 11. And in that case, you're, you're running into problems under the Senate rules. Yeah. Every budget analyst I've seen who's looked at this has said like unequivocally in year 11, this is increasing the deficit. So we should just like ponder this for a little bit, right? Because <laughs> they, people have been saying, people have been doing like their tax reform is hard takes for months and, and they've been working on this. Uh, for months, and they just like on a basic level, they just like they didn't complete the assignment. Right, you know what I mean? Right. It's like you tell the class, "Go write as the tax bill," and they just like they didn't. Like this bill, if fifty-one United States senators announced tomorrow, you know what, Paul, Kevin, you nailed it. I'm going to vote for this bill. It would just all fall apart in a poof of smoke. Like, right? They, they didn't write the bill. Right. Like, if this bill were put on the floor in the Senate, someone would raise a point of order and say, like, this violates the rules. And the parliamentarian would say, yeah, you're right. And they wouldn't be able to pass it. Like, they've just punted. Like like you said, like, everyone has talked about how hard this is and how you have to make tough choices to, like, make it work with the Senate rules. And that is still really hard. And they have not done the work. Right. <laughs> and I think it seems telling how they, they had to torture themselves just to meet the $1.5 trillion number for the first 10 years. And not, clearly, they just had no appetite for figuring out how to actually make this sustainable over a longer and period. And there's, there's a particular balloon thing with the estate tax. Right. Which like to fit the one point five trillion dollar ceiling, they don't fully repeal it until the back five years. But but that means that it's like it looks worse as you as you go further. Right. Since they were trying to meet both the one point five trillion dollar limit for the first 10 years and this, they have sort of balloons in different directions for different policies. So like they've enacted this new or they haven't enacted they proposed this new $300 per person tax credit for, like, other people in your house other than children. So, like, if if your elderly parent is living in your house, you get $300 um, uh, as a credit for them. But also your, like, your teen. But also your teen, yeah. Because um, for some reason, the child tax credit ends at 16, which I think is a little—I mean, that's fine, but it's it's, like, a little counterintuitive. Yeah, it's—there are a lot of things wrong with the child tax credit. But, <laughs> um, so they introduced this, and then it— phases out after year five. And there's no policy reason to phase it out after year five. The idea is not that it's like less hard to have a senior living in your house after after year five. It's just that they don't want to raise taxes and or they don't want to increase the deficit too much in the out years. 
And so you have a bunch of provisions like that, and then you have provisions like the estate tax. They're doing like literally the opposite purpose. And the result is you have this sort of jumble of things that adds up to increasing the deficit in the first 10 years and also increasing the deficit after that. But so if it worked, right, you, I, I think you could explain the phase-in, phase-out game pretty clearly, right, which is that they're taking things that they think are popular and politically defensible like the uh, these just sort of new tax credits for middle-class families, right? When Paul Ryan says typical family is going to save $1,100, they're talking primarily about this expansion of the child tax credit and the creation of, of these new um, sort of non-child whatever credits. So then that new credit expires after five years. And one reason that it expires after five years is that Republicans think it's really good, right? Like they think yeah. you could put an extender bill for that on the floor, and Democrats would probably want to vote for it. Or if they didn't want to vote for it, it'd be that would be a tough vote. Because, like, this is a good idea. A- another thing that expires is immediate expensing of business investment, which is, like, obscure topic, but something that has a lot of expert support, even though it's fairly costly. I love it costly. very deeply. <laughs> and something that just also, you know, it's like businesses will say, oh, hey, if you let this expire, like, our investment's going to, fall off a cliff next year. And Democrats will be at least reluctant to to not go along with that. Uh, versus a state tax repeal, right? If that was phasing out, Democrats would say, yeah, fine. Right? <laughs> right. Like, that's that's As fine. actually happened when, when George W. Bush eliminated the estate tax and then Democrats demanded it come back. Exactly. Right. So it's a it's really, it's, it's like an upside down universe where it's like they're taking the stuff that, like, they don't think they have strong arguments for and making that permanent. And they're taking the stuff that, like, is most appealing about this plan and making it phase out, hoping that they can set up this, like, clever game of chicken. But to return to what we were saying, they haven't made it, even with these phase-in, phase-out things, like, it it doesn't add up. Yeah, they haven't solved the long-term problem. And it seems like, the way I'm, I see it as is the, the only way to fix the long-term deficit problem is you either allow the tax cuts to expire, which Republicans are very reluctant to do and corporations certainly don't want them to do on the corporate side, or you're look, now you have to start looking at um, other savings like entitlement reforms and stuff that's going to really make the politics of this a lot messier. So there's been sort of a meme that I kind of want to push back at where people are saying they can't let it expire because they tried that with the Bush tax cuts and it didn't work, that that the, the tax cuts didn't stick, which I feel like is a really deep misreading of what happened in 2010 and 2012. It is true that Obama and Democrats in Congress successfully pushed to get certain tax increases for rich people, both in the estate tax and on the top bracket. But like 95% of the Bush tax cuts, which affected sort of the brackets below the top bracket, are here permanently. Like even by 2008 in the Democratic primaries, like both Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama were saying like, we totally don't want to get rid of the Bush tax cuts for like people making below X number where X is a number in the six figures. And like that's power that they they were able to use the Senate rules to permanently or like near permanently. It's now like 16 years later, sort of alter what income taxes look like for most people. And even if they didn't get the sort of very top end of that, that's still an important and enduring thing. And the same thing happened in 2003 that they they said that instead of taxing dividends as normal income, you'll tax it as capital gains. That was a new thing. That was something the Democrats fought back at. And now it's just a normal part of the tax code that no one's really disputing. 
So I think it's totally possible that this somewhat cynical game they're playing where the sort of advantages for for middle class people phase out like works and that when it comes time to the phase out like democrats will fold and and help them make it permanent right but i mean this still it's a question of can you do this with the corporate rates right i mean one thing with the bush tax cut package is that democrats accepted in the years 2000 and 2001 the premise that taxes were too high in the United States. I mean, this is like ancient history, but like there was a budget surplus and the Democratic Party at that time was not prepared to say, we believe that it's appropriate to run a structural deficit of 2 to 3% per year and therefore we want to increase federal spending by a large amount, not offset by any taxes. They instead said, no, we actually want to do a large tax cut, but it was like different and not quite as big as Bush's tax cut, uh, which is one reason that, I mean, when Bush's tax cut was ultimately put on the floor, 12 Senate Democrats voted for it. Um, and so I don't know, right? The thing with this corporate tax cut is like, there's not an enormous Democratic appetite for like a trillion dollar business tax cut. So it's not obvious to me that Democrats would fold on extending it. I mean, maybe parts of it, depending on what it is. Um But at any rate, Republicans feel strongly that what matters to drive economic growth is these very top rates, right? So, I mean, in their head, they think that they failed. And that explains a lot of what they're doing right now. Yeah, I mean, that that might be true. I'm just saying, like, in in reality, they have, like, permanently altered the American tax code. (laughs) No, I understand. But, you know, like, a lot of things in politics are driven by the fact that, like, Liberals and conservatives care about different things, right? So, like, broadly speaking, since 1980, liberals feel like they've been losing because inequality has gone up so much. But conservatives feel like they've been losing because the welfare state has expanded a lot. And and so you can have some of that on taxes, right? So it's like taxes are lower than they were pre-Bush, but taxes on rich people are higher. Um, so it's like everyone loses. <laughs> or wins, depending on your, your, your sort of priorities. But, have, I mean, has there been... Are Senate Republicans, like, talking about this? Like, like what are they going to do? It seems like a, a, a one thing that we've seen a lot of in the Trump years is just kind of people, like, beating up on Senate Republicans as if the House has been doing amazing work right. when actually they just have different rules. Yeah, and the Senate, yeah, the Senate's problem is there's such a thin margin for error. There are 52 Republican senators, and 50 of them will have to vote for this bill if it's going to pass. Um, you know, I think what's important to note, of course, that the Senate, much like we saw in the healthcare debate, the Senate is working on their own tax bill that they will unveil presumably sometime soon. And so obviously how that differs from what the House proposed will be an important element of how, you know, how this goes forward. Um, but like that, that very thin margin for error, I think, is already sort of revealing itself and how problematic that could end up being for anything that looks like the tax plan. First of all, an element that we didn't have in the health care debate is you now have two Republican senators who have said, who are viciously opposed to Trump and who have said that they don't want to vote for a tax bill that you know dramatically increases the deficit, which this one obviously would. Like that's baked into the way that it's structured. And Jeff Flake, uh, the Arizona senator who has said that he's not going to run for re- re-election next year, was on the Senate floor yesterday saying that we can't, you know, we can't increase the deficit. And we can't believe that magic economic growth is going to make up for what um, you know what this bill appears to do. And then so you have 
a handful of people like those. You have people like Marco Rubio, who wanted a, a much more dramatic increase of the child tax credit. You have always kind of the the moderates, like somebody like Susan Collins, who has already defied the party on health care and, you know, is not interested in seeing the estate tax repealed. So I and, don't know who Mike Rounds is, but he apparently <laughs> also thinks that. He's from South Dakota. He's a uh, he's. He's dull, but occasionally surprising. Yeah, he's generally a go-along to get-along guy, but he tries to be have kind of a bit of a maverick streak. But the point being, you could already come up with a list of like eight Republican senators who are at least not thrilled about elements of the tax of the House bill or big parts of it, like how much it increases the deficit. And it's not clear to me how anything that comes out of the Senate that remotely resembles the House bill is going to be able to get to fifty, other than this overarching. We have to do something because we already failed on health care. Um, so I don't even know where else to go. There's like so much going on in this bill. But in in the spirit <laughs> of, of credit where due, uh, let's talk about th- there's some good ideas, I think, in this bill. I think I think overall the sort of conceptual purpose of this bill is like to finance a giant tax cut for the rich, which makes good ideas sort of worthless. Um, but they're still out there. I mean, I think I think there's things here that that you might want to do or that if they were enacted, let's just say, like, I wouldn't want to see undone. Right. Um, so I think maybe the best idea that has remained in this is that they further limit the mortgage interest deduction. Um, I've noticed when I write about how bad the mortgage interest deduction is, like a lot of like otherwise liberal Fox readers get very upset because they rely on the mortgage interest deduction and think of it as a middle class benefit. But it's the main way that we subsidize housing in this country. It goes overwhelmingly to upper middle and upper class people. It's like advantages homeowners at the expense of renters and in particular poor renters. Um, sociologist, uh, Matthew Desmond, who wrote this incredible book called Evicted that everyone should read if they haven't already, has a really good piece in the New York Times just sort of on how bad the mortgage interest deduction is for inequality and, and how it harms low-income families. So they don't get rid of it, which which hopefully one day we'll, we'll do when I'm like 85. Hmm. But they do limit the amount that you can deduct interest from from houses. Currently, like if the first a million dollars in value of your mortgage, you can deduct interest for. Of each of your first two mortgages. Of each of your first two mortgages. And they they both get rid of the the, the second mortgage uh, deduction and reduce the limit to half a million dollars. And so for the vast majority of people who live in like normal areas of the country where $150,000 is a reasonable price for a home, this doesn't change anything for you. But for like affluent people, especially in like, high-cost urban areas, it's a big change. Yeah, although, I mean, I should say, I mean, really, if you look at it, right, I mean, even in California, the median house is $385,000. Uh, in D.C., because D.C. is, if D.C. was a state, it would still be a city. It's even higher than that, but it's still, it's $430,000. Uh, most people, obviously, less than 100% of the value of your home is mortgage debt. Uh, if you haven't done something that's gone badly awry. Um, And of course, most people who've bought homes have at least partially paid them down, right? I mean, most people didn't take out a mortgage yesterday. So broadly speaking, I mean, this is a small limitation. The the only people who are going to be hit with like a big tax bill out of this are really quite rich. I mean, there's no place in America that is so expensive that the typical person has a $1.25 billion home that they took a mortgage out on last week. 
Right. You know, and like that's who pays like the full freight here. Right. It's like it's interesting because the home builders are opposing this plan and they also oppose this mortgage thing. But the change is actually like too small to justify this. Their opposition to it is driven by a very complicated calculation that increasing the standard deduction is going to mean that just fewer people take the mortgage deduction. Which is another good part of this plan. (laughs) All right. How does that work? Well, so currently, uh, as as people who've done taxes will remember, you can either take the standard deduction or you can itemize. And so if the value combined value of the state and local deduction and the mortgage interest deduction and the charitable deduction and, and the handful of other much smaller deductions sort of add up to more than the standard deduction, you do that. And so it follows from that that if the standard deduction is a lot bigger, more people will take it. And so the sort of incentive effects of the other deductions are less powerful. And so this plan roughly doubles the standard deduction for both individuals and, and couples. And that's going to mean a lot fewer people taking the mortgage interest deduction and sort of further limiting its power. So if you think the mortgage interest deduction is bad, and I think it's extremely bad, then that's that's a positive step. And it also just like makes it marginally simpler to do taxes. Like the simplest thing would be to just tell the government to do your taxes because they have all the information they need to do that. But assuming we're going to continue to do this stupid system where people have to file their taxes every year, like it's better if people can do that with a standard deduction than having to sort of go through and itemize since that's the actually complicated part of it. Anything anything you like in here? I mean, finally taking it away from those freeloaders with large medical bills. I do think I'm I don't know that there's anything I like per se, but I do yeah, there's there will be some interesting like I already know, yes, the one of the deductions that's being eliminated is on medical expenses. And you know, I'm sure there will be some people who will that'll be offset by the doubling of the standard deduction, but I you know, there's presumably going to be some universe of people who you know, have are either in long-term care or have um, you know, a lot of medical equipment in their home or some kind of, you know, medical condition that necessitates that that are going to be hit by the elimination of that deduction. I already know that the AARP has already kind of reached out to me like, hey, we should talk about this because we're very upset about it. The poor um, medical device manufacturers. They can't win. They didn't get their they tax couldn't, They couldn't get their tax <laughs> repealed. Um, that was interesting to me. I don't know if it's a surprise or not, but there was no, you know, after failing to repeal all these Obamacare taxes that they hated so badly, they didn't even... They didn't even go there now. Not even the medical device. Not even the medical device. Even Elizabeth Warren and Al Franken hate because they have medical device. You can get seventy-five votes for repealing the. No, four years ago this looked dead, and now it's seemingly (laughs) (laughs) untouchable, and I don't know why. My favorite thing in this is this is it's super nerdy, but they switch the inflation indexing of the tax brackets from the current consumer price index for all urban consumers to the chained consumer price index for all urban consumers. Um, We have heard of this chain CPI before normally as a stealthy way to cut Social Security benefits, which I do not agree with. But I do agree with the science behind it, that this is a better way to calculate inflation. And now we're using superior science to raise taxes on everyone over the long haul, which I think is a is a great idea. Because the, it, the, the genius of it is that, like, it just means that the tax share of GDP will, like, go up a little bit each year, year after year, just as a result of the normal, healthy process of the economy. Before Ronald Reagan 
the tax brackets weren't inflation indexed at all. I think this is like the most important thing that nobody knows about American politics. But like in the good old days of the New Deal coalition, you had progressive income tax and unindexed brackets. So it was like every year there was just a big tax increase. So then every couple of years, Congress would cut taxes, which is sensible because there's no reason taxes just be going up all the time. Uh, But if you wanted to increase spending on new things, all you had to do was like not cut taxes as much as you might otherwise have cut taxes. So the whole game was like incredibly rigged for liberalism and we got tons (laughs) and tons of great stuff. Um, Reagan put a stop to that in his like big 81 tax cut. Almost all of the specific tax provisions of that bill ended up getting rolled back, but but not the inflation indexing. So Kevin Brady, by slightly walking back uh, inflation indexing brackets, this is like that that one's a keeper. Galaxy brain. Yeah. (laughs) Um, No, it's 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 a good one. Um, Yeah. I don't know about these specific individual deductions. Like I I just I felt like the tires were not kicked on that one in yesterday's, uh, you know, sort of initial discussions. There was like a lot of mortgage talk, but like raise taxes on sick people. Right. Student loans. Orphans. (laughs) Yeah. Orphans and, you know, kids with student loan debt. Right, that's the yeah, other one. and the medical expense deduction. I mean, it's it's small in the scheme of things, but it's a very concentrated thing, and it's right. the rare itemized deduction that is mostly paid by like poor and low income people. Yeah, that like it's very rare that you have so much to deduct as a poor person that it's larger than the the standard deduction, just because you don't have a lot of money to donate to charity and you typically don't have a mortgage. But if you have like a crushing medical emergency, yeah. that adds up really, really quickly. Well, and I assume that's why AARP is wary because these are probably people you know might have home, you know, home health aides, people who have like medical equipment in their home. So yeah, it's it's people in dire circumstances who are probably taking advantage of this deduction. And I have to say, I mean, one thing that's on on, on the politics here is that you know getting rid of all deductions is obviously hard because all the deductions have their defenders. But at least you can say, okay, what we're doing here is we're getting rid of all deductions and we're making the standard deduction bigger. So that's like the new, in in the new system, you have a bigger standard deduction and all the deductions go away. When you decide you've got to keep a couple, right? So like they're keeping the charitable deduction because, I don't know, charities sound good. And they're keeping, uh, mostly keeping the the mortgage deduction because it's popular and, and whatever. Then you got a problem because like you can't say to like, the old lady with heavy medical expenses. No, no, no. I'm not like targeting your tax break for elimination. Like we're reforming the whole system. Cause like you are targeting her tax break for elimination. Like it's, that's a lot. You can say like, well, mortgage and charity, like those are the most powerful ones. So we'll keep them and we'll make it easier. But it, it makes the knife like sharper when you're hitting other people. Like, I think sophisticated tax policy people will say that if you want to, like, curb deductions, you just do a general limit on all of them. Like, Obama tried to do this uh, by, like, limiting everything to a 28% value. Um, If you wanted to be more dramatic, you could do what Mitt Romney proposed and put, like, a dollar value. So you could say that that no one can claim more than $15,000. Right. Deduct whatever you want, but only $15,000. And then especially if you don't inflation index that, to get back to Matt's previous point— like over time, you just kill all the deductions because that that amount doesn't increase, and like that lets a poor family that actually has fifteen thousand dollars in medical expenses keep like taking that. You can honestly say to your constituents, "I'm not getting rid of all these deductions you care about very deeply," but you're like slowly making the kind of progress that people want to make against these deductions. Individually, just wiping out popular deductions, it's 
it might be a good policy. It's like a really stupid way politically to do this thing. I will also be interested to hear from charities. I mean, the, the home builders caught that this standard deduction doubling is bad for them. Uh, the the insidious charity lobby in the United States does not yet seem to have like cottoned on to this problem. But well, there's a, but it's exactly parallel. Right? Yeah, there's an ideological element to this, right? Like a lot of those charities are religious groups, people who would affiliate themselves with conservatives, and there's just an underlying conservative belief that charity is good in part because it offsets the need for state welfare. And so I can buy why a Republican plan would be like, we don't want to charge. Target charitable right. donations. No, no, I mean it's just and yet what, it does. What, right, that's that's what I'm interested. <laughs> oh, in. I mean, I, I think yeah. I think they did the math on this, and they were like, we don't want to target charitable donations, but they kind of did. Right, right. They I don't see. want to. So it, it just if I, I don't actually know who like the big players are in this, but like if some church organization looks at this and they're like, wait a minute, this actually by doubling the standard deduction greatly reduces the incentive to give us money. We're going to raise an objection to it. I don't think that's a group that Republicans are going to be like, well, you know, who cares about you, right? right like, right. They, they, Republicans care a lot about churches. Well, and and to that point, my understanding, I believe it was Mark Meadows, uh, the, the head of the Freedom Caucus, has been pushing a proposal to make the charitable deduction what's called an above-the-line deduction um, that you can claim even if you take the standard deduction. This right. is a pretty expensive thing that is just like a windfall for churches, um, and so, yeah, I would expect them to lobby pretty hard for that, especially when they realize that, like, they're going to be left worse off by this. Anyway, as we can see here, there's a lot of potential. Uh, I, I think there's a lot of changes people are going to ask for here, and they have very little room to make actual changes. So I think that we are going to have plenty more episodes on this <laughs> subject. I think this express train to a vote by Thanksgiving or whatever it is they're saying this is not going to happen. Um, so I'll just say uh, thank you to both Dylans uh, for being here. Uh, thank you to uh, Peter Leonard for producing. I wanted to do a plug for the Weeds Facebook group. It is a great place to discuss Weedsy policy issues and other exciting things. I was doing some comments in there uh, a couple days ago. Great place to sort of continue the conversation. We'll be back next uh, next Tuesday with even more Weeds. Weeds.